Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind that is the mind of Christ. And to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we're going to discuss why Concord matters for the details of worship. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point in St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And my companion confessor in conversation about this matter today is Chaplain Sean Denzer. He is the Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and Chaplain for the International Center of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod in St. Louis, Missouri. Chaplain Denzer, welcome back to Concord Matters. Hey, Sean, it's great to be back in studio with you again. Absolutely. And we wrap up our series, little mini-series within a series that we've been doing on this show. Our overarching series is that Concord matters and looking at all the various things that Concord matters for. And a great honor that as we've been doing, this is our fourth week now with you. Big topic, Concord Matters for Worship. We began that four weeks ago with Concord Matters for Worship. And there, I really like how it was centered on the true worship is the worship of faith. You accented that really well for us. Then in the second week, we had Concord Matters for Reverence. And there you accented really well again for us. True reverence is the reverence of faith. And then last week, we had Concord Matters for differences in our worship. Technical term for that is adiaphora. And there we see what is it that we're concerned about is confessing the faith. And so I think that has been the driving factor all the way through this. And then so today, as we wrap this series up with this big topic of worship, we're going to get into some of the details today. So how do you want to go ahead and set us up here today? Well, I think you've laid it out well, and I really want to urge all of our listeners, uh, especially if you're just coming in right now, you have to go back and listen to those shows that we've done before. Because as Sean said, faith is the center of it. Today, we are not going to talk that much about faith. We're going to be way into the weeds, into the details. We saw over and over in these few passages on worship, this kind of a phrase saying, we keep all of the usual ceremonies, or we really don't depart from any of the traditions that we've received, except for a few small places. It kind of raises the question, what in the world are these usual things? What does it normally look like? And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to use the confessions, just those few tidbits, those glimpses of what it might be like on Sunday morning as our stepping off point to leave the Book of Concord proper, but to look at some historical resources and some information about the time of the confessors to see what worship looked like for them. You know, it's hard. We've come back to the same few articles in this topic on worship. Some would be tempted to say that worship is a minor footnote in the Book of Concord. I admit it. Faith, the justification of faith, Christ, all of these details about the sacraments is far more important in the confession of our teaching than all of the details of worship which accompany it. On the other hand, if you were to ask the average person, the average Christian, where do I learn about this? It's in worship. It's in the sermons that are being preached during the context of worship. 
they're going to hear these stories. They're going to learn about the faith. They're going to watch and observe the differences between the Lutheran Church and the Roman Catholic Church or the Calvinistic Church by what they do on Sunday morning, on Saturday night, all throughout the week at school. And so we're going to actually look at that today. As we do, we're really going to span the time period of the whole Book of Concord. So for our listeners, just to think a little bit about the 16th century, imagine you're uh, 100 years, right, in a century. 1530 is when the Augsburg Confession is delivered, so in the 30s. We go on, 35 is when the small called articles are. All of this is 10 years after Luther came out with the catechisms in the 20s. But as we go on, Luther dies in 1546. After that, Melanchthon is the heir apparent, and we talked about those controversies with Pastor Bean last time, eventually leading to the siege at Magdeburg, the trouncing of the Lutheran armies by the Roman Catholic troops, and and then the aftermath of these interims where the Catholics had tried to reimpose Roman Catholic teaching by Roman Catholic ceremonies and sometimes blurring the lines between the two. And this rising, competing teaching that we haven't talked much about yet, which is Calvinism, the Protestants, those radical reformers who said Luther didn't go nearly far enough, we have to change all sorts of other things. And the things they attacked especially are these ceremonial things, worship, that they would throw out everything that we've received from the church that came before the Reformation and really start over from scratch with just the Bible, but in a way that ignores the church's life and ignores the fact that there were faithful Christians confessing the faith even in the darkness of the Middle Ages. Darkness, that is, that came from the gospel being obscured, not from there being a lack of Christians or a lack of intelligent people. And so we see that the last confessions in the Book of Concord are the formula of Concord, which is trying to unite these Lutheran territories, their princes, their clergy, their people, around a confession of faith that is clarified on two fronts now, not just against the Roman Catholic errors from the Middle Ages, but against the Protestant errors that were really the bigger threat at that point in time, now that there had been some kind of peace made after the battles at Magdeburg. So to get a transition, I think, from the faith, the doctrine that we've talked about, and to see this period of confessionalization, I actually want to go to the author of the Formula of Concord, the chief author, which was Martin Chemnitz. And he, along with Jakob Andrei, who was one of the confessors also in the Book of Concord, in the Formula of Concord, that is, he was the principal author of the church order for his territory called braunschweig Wolfenbüttel. And this church order has been published in English recently as part of the series on Chemnitz's works. This is volume nine, and this comes from Concordia Publishing House. This is the church order for Braunschweig Wuffenbüttel. And this is a fantastic resource, a glimpse into what life was like ordering the church way back in Chemnitz's time. So this is the time of the Formula of Concord. This was published in 1569, about 15 years before the Book of Concord was published. And here's what he says about these ceremonies and what he says right before he starts to lay out what church is supposed to look like in his territory. I'll read a little bit. Martin Chemnitz writes, The churches of the Reformation have and retain certain free adiaphorous ceremonies, not with an understanding like that of the Pope, who's forced his precepts upon the church, but only to the end that in such assemblies everything may be done decently in order and for building up. Think about everything we talked about with Pastor Bean last time. This is the same argument being rehearsed. But what I like about Chemnitz here is he explains a little bit what good order looks like and and what it means. 
He says that there may be one certain order where, when, by whom, and in what form and manner the administration of the word, sacraments, and prayers will be held. What should come first? What should follow after? And that there may be such ceremonies as give external indication that great, exalted, serious things are happening in the congregation, so that the ceremonies may serve as guidance, incitement, admonition, and stimulus, so that the people may concentrate their thoughts and lift up their hearts in all humility, so that with sincere devotion they may dispose themselves to the word, sacrament, and prayer in the congregation. He says just a little bit after that, And though Christians are not everywhere bound to the same specific ceremonies, for Christian freedom has its place in this article, as the ancients say, dissonance in rites does not harm consonance in faith. Nevertheless, because there is still all manner of benefit inherent in keeping ceremonies as uniform as possible, and because this also serves to maintain unity in doctrine, also because common, simple, weak consciences are all the less offended and rather the more improved, it is therefore viewed as good that as much as possible uniformity in ceremonies with the neighboring Reformation churches should be achieved and maintained. And for this reason, in the matter of ceremonies, all pastors in the churches of our principality, that is his territory, shall henceforth strictly abide by and conform to the order. This is the church order described below. And it shall not be neglected without exceptional and considerable cause. So you see here, even though we've established that the ceremonies in and of themselves are not worship, they're concerned with the faith being passed on, the preaching, the receiving of the sacraments. The Lutherans went on to be, in fact, a little strict, we might say, a a little persnickety, detailed about how they wanted the ceremonies done in their territories so that good order could be followed. And what kind of good order was this? Order that actually helped to incite, admonish, and stimulate faith and participation in the congregations. So there's the end of it, Martin Chemnitz. One of his teachers, Urban Regius, who was the first pastor to bring the Reformation to Lower Saxony, which is northern Germany, in a region very close to where Chemnitz was. And Chemnitz quotes this Urban Regius as one of his most beloved teachers. He writes a couple things here about adiaphora, about human ceremonies. He says, we do not strive for righteousness in these matters. Instead, we're trying to educate those who do not know any better so that they learn to treat sacred things with reverence. He writes, no one should preach against those traditions having to do with adiaphora that were established for the sake of order. Rather, we should endorse them so that the laity are not frightened away by such ceremonies and traditions and start despising the exercise of piety in general. That will happen wherever preachers reject all traditions without distinction, as we see now in many places where people do not go to church, or if they go, they disregard everything sacred. The authors of this error are unlearned and brash preachers who rail constantly against all ceremonies and traditions to the point that people begin to look with disdain on public sermons and the administration of the sacraments. This comes from a book that is published by Marquette University Press called Preaching the Reformation, but in Latin it was called The Forms for Carefully and Without Scandal Speaking About the Principal Christian Doctrines. And the reason that Pastor Regius put this together was because of preachers that would just preach without any distinction or caution and end up hurting the Lutheran cause by just lambasting the Mass, lambasting all the Popish stuff, 
and missing the fact that there are many things that we retain as Lutherans in our freedom because they help the gospel. In fact, such uncautious speaking ends up harming in the worst way. It ends up saying, you know what? Church itself is an adiaphora, and you don't even need to come. You don't even need to worship. And that, in fact, is wrong. One of the things that I'm getting out of those, and there's a lot going on there to be sure, those are excellent works, highly commend them, recommend them for our listeners. But one of the things that I'm getting out of there is a tension that we often feel in our church today of this, if you hold to an order, if you hold to the traditional forms that we have received from the church, as our confessions encourage us, as we've talked about, as they all relate back to that faith again, sometimes the charge is given that, well, you're just being legalistic. You're just saying you have to do this. And I see them pushing back against that and highlighting exactly what faithful pastors and Christians still do to this day with that is we push back against the legalism and we say, by no means. Certainly, that's our last desire in this. We don't want to place a law on you that God's word itself has not given you. That's the very definition of adiaphora, as we talked about last week with Pastor Bean. But rather, it's for the sake of the simple conscience. It's for the sake of teaching, as our Augsburg Confession talks about the Mass, as we talked about earlier as well. And I think you brought it out really well last week as well, is that we all have this tendency at times to get lazy, and we just go by what we see. Well, what we see needs to be teaching us faithfully so that simpleness, again, can really be highlighted. And I I think those bring that out really well and, and center our attention on why do we care about the details of this worship following a church order? It's not to be legalistic. It's in order to teach the simple, the beauty of our Christian faith. Precisely. And in fact, back in 1526, so even before the Augsburg Confession, Martin Luther himself, when he released his advice for the German order of the Mass, which only partially caught on, he said this, he said, I would kindly and for God's sake request, do not make it a rigid law or bind or entangle anyone's conscience. Use it in Christian liberty as long when, where, and how you find it to be practical and useful. But, Because of the widespread demand for German masses and services and the general dissatisfaction and offense that's been caused by the great variety of new masses, because everyone makes his own order of service, that's why he was putting this out. He says the people are perplexed and offended by these differences in liturgical use. As far as possible, we should observe the same rites and ceremonies. The very same tension that you see at the end of this confessional period around the Formula of Concord at the end of the century Luther was already seeing and observing in his time. So I think this is a perfect time now to dip back into the confessions and see our stepping off point before we uh, look at some more history. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe even I should have finished my thought that the tension we have there, as you've highlighted really well for us, is that tension between legalism on the one side, which I did talk about, and chaos on the other. And that's the tension that we're constantly holding there. But yeah, let's go ahead and get some glimpses of this from the Augsburg Confession and our confessions. And let's see, we want to start with Article 15 of Church Ceremonies. And you say we keep going back to the same articles, but they are there and very helpful for us. So this is something we've touched in before, Article 15 of Church Ceremonies. And just take paragraph one here. Our churches teach that ceremonies ought to be observed that may be observed without sin. Also ceremonies and other practices that are profitable for tranquility, and good order in the church, in particular holy days, festivals, and the like, ought to be observed. Yeah, and we're going to see a few of these and the like get tossed out there. And those are the great stepping off points for us for today. 
to look at some of these details. So let's keep track of these. What was mentioned? Holy days, certain festivals. This is the beginnings of talking about the church year. We'll find them say similar things other places too. And similar in Augsburg Confession 24, it says this, Our churches are falsely accused of abolishing the Mass, that's the divine service, the chief service of Sunday with Holy Communion. Rather, the Mass is held among us and celebrated with the highest reverence. Nearly all of the usual ceremonies are also preserved, except that the parts sung in Latin are interspersed here and there with German hymns. These have been added to teach the people, for ceremonies are needed for this reason alone that the uneducated be taught what they need to know about Christ. So this introduces two things. One, these usual ceremonies, which we want to know what was usual back then, because that's not obvious to us right now. But we see that one of the things that changed was the using of vernacular language, German for them. And yet, Latin was not abandoned. And as we look at other parts of the confessions, as well as when we go outside of them, I think we'll see why that was. But we have a hint already here teaching is the concern. And we see some of that pick up in the Apology then article corresponding to this. So this is Article 24 of the Mass, picking up paragraph one here. At the outset, we must again make this preliminary statement. We do not abolish the Mass, but religiously keep and defend it. Masses are celebrated among us every Lord's Day and on other festivals. The sacrament is offered to those who wish to use it after they have been examined and absolved. In the usual public ceremonies are observed, the series of lessons, of prayers, vestments, and other such things. Okay, so here's a list that includes a few more. If we were to bring the German translation, this is largely drawn from Latin, the German adds another one that's missing, and that's songs, something we've heard of already. But we have public ceremonies. Ceremony is a word that we use to describe any kind of action that is done, not necessarily the words, we might call that the rite or the liturgical formula or something like that, but ceremonies are visible things. So what does a guy wear? What hand motions does he make? Where does he walk? As well as the other things that go with it. Here we have one laid out, the series of lessons, that is the lectionary, the order of readings in the church here, which corresponds to what it said earlier about we hold masses every Lord's Day, that's a way for saying Sundays, and on other festivals, that these have some distinction because the order of readings is not something left up to the pastor, but is carried on from tradition so that every Sunday has its own reading. Also the prayers. We didn't just throw out all of the parts of the service, but kept most of them. Songs as well, as the German includes. Vestments. We'll see that that is something that the Lutherans continue to use. And other such things, boy, wouldn't we like to know all those. It may be worth considering also later in this article on the Apology, something we talked about in previous times. But again, as we get into the details, we don't want to forget that we're not suggesting these in of themselves are worship. They complain in paragraph 44 against the adversaries, that is the Roman Catholics. In the confutation, they fuss over the desertion of churches. What are they afraid of? They're afraid that altars are going to stand unadorned, lacking candles and images. They regard these trifles as ornaments to the churches. It's actually far different. Daniel is worried about a different desertion, namely the ignorance of the gospel. So imagine fighting this front against the Roman Catholics. They seem obsessed with all of these accompaniments to the service. Candles, right? Vestments. This is their obsession. 
And uh, it's hard for us to understand this because we just don't have this obsession. We might see somebody who seems to be interested in these things or ask questions about it, and we almost immediately have the reaction, why are you majoring in these minor things? We don't understand people who majored in the minors as much as the Roman Catholics were at that time because they wanted to defend all of the outward things while giving no attention to the teaching of the people, no attention to the doctrine, which was very much controverted. Then again, these Lutherans, when they get back to talking about such ceremonies, like they do in paragraph 50, well, I'll let you read here. Yeah, this is definitely picked up exactly what you're highlighting right there with 50 and 51. If we must speak of outward appearances, church attendance among us is better than among the adversaries. The audiences are held by useful and clear sermons. Neither the people nor the teachers have ever understood the doctrine of the adversaries. There is nothing that keeps people at church more than good preaching. The true adornment of the churches is godly, useful, and clear doctrine. The devout use of the sacraments, fervent prayer, and the like. Candles, golden vessels, and similar adornments are fitting, but they are not the specifically unique adornment belonging to the church. If the adversaries make these things the focus of worship and not the preaching of the gospel in faith and the struggles of faith, they are to be numbered among those whom Daniel describes as worshiping their God with gold and silver, citing Daniel 11.38. So here we even have candles and golden vessels singled out, right? Communion ware and the candles that might be on the altar. And in singling these out, what are they saying? I mean, we still have these. We assume everybody's using something similar to them. We're not nitpicky about how many they have. And the reason we're not nitpicky about it is they in themselves are not the worship. But the Roman Catholics seem focused and fixated on that at the expense of the preaching of the gospel, faith, and all the Word of God. Which then comes back, kind of backtracking in the apology, But Article 15 here, picking up with paragraph 38, they once again say why they maintain these things and highlight this really well. So picking up paragraph 38 of Article 15 in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, we cheerfully maintain the old traditions made in the church for the sake of usefulness and peace. We interpret them in a more moderate way and reject the opinion that holds they justify. Our enemies falsely accuse us of setting aside good ordinances and church discipline. We can truly declare that the public form of the churches is more fitting with us than with the adversaries. If anyone will consider it in the right way, we conform to the canons more closely than the adversaries. Among the adversaries, unwilling celebrants and those hired for pay, and very frequently only for pay, celebrate the masses. They sing psalms, not that they may learn or pray, but for the sake of the service, as though this work were a service. So what they're laying out is a couple particular examples of details. Two of them are mentioned here, being a celebrant, saying masses, right? Saying masses is just a way of saying conducting the divine service with Holy Communion. The Roman Catholics do that. They do that all the time. In fact, they do it all by themselves off in the corner. They pay these priests to do it. There are big endowments so that if you're lucky enough to become a priest that gets to have this endowment, you're set. They're going to keep you alive for the sake of saying that mass every day at that altar. And the accusation here is quite sharp. They're saying, actually, they're just doing it for the money. They don't care, and they certainly aren't interested in trying to teach anybody while they're doing that. 
The other thing that's mentioned is the singing of the Psalms. Here we're not thinking so much of the Mass, of the communion service, but we're thinking of the daily offices. If you were a monk, this was your main job to sit there and pray through all 150 Psalms in seven various services of the day, all day long. Luther complains about this all the time, how useless it was for him to howl and growl these hours. And yet, the interesting thing is, he actually benefited a whole lot from We might have a chance to talk about that later. But the singing of the Psalms as a work, as a prescription, as here, you've got to sing 1 through 5 today at noon. And if you miss singing 1 through 5 at noon, that's what we're going to be mad about. We don't care if you pay attention to it, we just want you to get it done. This is that kind of by doing the outward work, regardless of whether you have any kind of faith or even comprehension of what you're doing. The doing of the work is all that is concerned. That's the situation under the papists. But... When we look at the situation among the Lutherans, they don't say, we don't do any of those things. No, they say, we do all those things, and we do them for the sake of faith. So now, what do they say about the Lord's Supper, the Mass, the Divine Service, and what do they say about singing psalms in the daily offices? Among us, many use the Lord's Supper every Lord's Day. They do so after they have been first instructed, examined, and absolved. The children sing psalms in order that they may learn. The people also sing so that they may either learn or pray. Perfect. So we see when it comes to the Mass, when it comes to the Lord's Supper, our people are instructed about what it is. This is the practice of closed communion, that they would know what they believe, that they would confess it by coming to the altar, that they would come looking as sinners to receive the Lord's great forgiveness and thereby be engaged, have faith be engaged in coming to the Lord's Supper. That's a lot more useful than just paying somebody to say a Mass in a corner by himself. And when it comes to the daily office, notice the focus has shifted, especially for the sake of the children. They're the ones who had the most time. This was part of the feature of their schooling, that they would be praying the daily offices, at the very least, matins and vespers, and by so doing, they would be learning both the music as well as the praying and the soldier itself for their benefit. In fact, so that there could be future ministers among the Lutherans. They very early on see this as a great value of it. In fact, future faithful Christians as well in the church, I would add, and also just the very beginning of paragraph 41 emphasizes how much this is so for the Lutherans, but not so for the papists. It says, among the adversaries, there is no catechizing of the children, whatever. They're not doing it for the sake of teaching, but the Lutherans are, and I think you've highlighted that really well. That's right. And then I think we can also jump in here too. I know you have a note here of Apology, Article 27, Paragraph 55, which picks up on this very same thread again. And so this says, We will not discuss here the entire service or ceremonies, the lessons, singing, and similar things. They could be tolerated if they were regarded simply as exercises such as school lectures. Their purpose is to teach the hearers and while teaching, to move some to fear or faith. But now the adversaries wrongly describe these ceremonies as services of God that merit the forgiveness of sins for themselves and for others. Because of this, they increase the number of these ceremonies. However, if they would use them to teach and encourage the hearers, brief and pointed lessons would be more profitable than these limitless babblings. Yeah, it's talking here about the monastic life. Praying of the daily offices is just kind of a rote, get her done say as many psalms as you can, sing it, don't pay attention, whatever. It's an incredible burden. Instead, this is how the Lutherans treat the monasteries, both the property as well as the establishments of them. 
is to repurpose them, or rather to purpose them as they used to be, for the sake of schooling, instruction, teaching, and the young are especially in mind here. So that not only would they be singing, but they would also be learning what they're singing at the same time. So it would have profit. All you have to do is think of Luther's little introduction of the small catechism, and you see this at work, right? You got to start with the rote singing, of course. You got to pick your version of the Ten Commandments, stick with it, Luther says, teach it like grammar, right? Teach them the words, word for word, until they know them. Then we want to also know what they mean and understand them. And then later we want to teach and put them into practice. And Luther came up with the large catechism for that. For us, that's really what our confirmation classes is. We expect everybody to know the commandments, the creed, the Lord's Prayer. Then we'd like them also to learn what it means. And then we want to have all the explanation as well. The same thing is true when it comes to the singing of the Psalms in the daily office. Okay, so here's our glimpses from the confessions talking about all these usual things that we carry on with. But what are those things? And that is great. We've got our stepping off point from the confessions. This is a good place to go ahead and take a break. You're listening to Concord Matters on KFUO. Cross Defense is the show where we talk about curious topics to excite the imagination, equip the mind, and comfort the soul with God's Word. Join me, Pastor Tyrell Bramwell, every Monday at 2 p.m. Central on KFUO Radio or anytime on KFUO.org or even your favorite podcast app. My friends, our foe is a fierce enemy. Our only defense is Christ on the cross. Welcome back to Concord Matters. As we continue talking with Chaplain Sean Denzer, we're getting into the details, why Concord Matters for the details of our worship. We had a great stepping off point, what we're talking about, why we care about the details here. We got glimpses of this from the confessions. So let's go ahead and get into the details, Chaplain Sean Denzer. Yeah, we want to see and we want to hear what worship was like. And for that, you got to have a firsthand account. And That's the tricky part. Not many people wrote about the usual things because they took it for granted, just as you and I would. Why would you write about the ordinary, everyday stuff? Everybody knows what that's like. Tell me about the extraordinary events. But we're interested in what the everyday, the usual is for Christians. So who can you find that from? Only the opponents of our Lutherans. We've already heard a little bit from the Roman Catholics. From their perspective, they're afraid that because a few ceremonies or songs have been omitted, that really the Lutherans are just doing a hack job on the liturgy. Well, that's one perspective. But the other perspective would come from the Protestants, the Calvinist churches, the Zwinglians, those radical reformers who said Luther didn't go far enough, particularly when it comes to the sacraments and any kind of ceremonies or visual elements that smacked of papism. Think about Karl Stott and those radical reformers who came through and smashed up churches, cut down priests, immediately started wearing regular old street clothes, and just made a whole riot of everything. And in fact, it was so bad that Luther had to come out of hiding in the Wartburg Castle and preach a whole series of sermons called the Invocavit Sermons, right from the beginning of Lent. And Luther there talks really quite conservatively and pulls back, reinstitutes even something that Lutherans were a little nervous about, and that is having communion only in one kind. But he brings that back for a time just to be patient 
to lead his people not out of Christianity, but just out of the darkness of the errors of the Roman Catholic Church, which again is the Lutheran principle. We are free to receive and use all of the great riches of the church. The only thing we need to be concerned about is purging those things that are actually contrary to the word of God. But those things that are not contrary to the word of God, especially those things that support and proclaim the word of God, those are to be received gladly and used. Ironically, the person who is the only and best account of what a Lutheran service looks like in the 16th century is a Calvinist minister. This man was named Wolfgang Musculus. He was visiting from Bremen, a town in kind of northwestern Germany, and he visited a Lutheran church in 1536. And he came here to Wittenberg, and here's the report that he gave. I'll kind of read it and interrupt myself with some comments. But here's his description of Sunday morning in the Lutheran church. And uh, by the way, this quote comes from a book called Faith and Act, The Survival of Medieval Ceremonies in the Lutheran Reformation by Ernst Walter Zeden, a translation by Kevin Walker. This can be found from Concordia Publishing House. I'll mention two other books with it, the best sources I know for hearing about kind of Luther and the confessionalization period, 16th century worship. That's a book called Luther's Liturgical Music by Robin Lever. You'll find this from Erdman's Publishing. And Worship Wars in Early Lutheranism from Oxford Publishing House. This is by Joseph Hurl, and he's one of our great professors at Concordia Seward. That book in particular has wonderful charts and graphs and all the nitty-gritty details on the various church orders and what Lutheran worship, the order of service, looked like in all sorts of different territories. But here's this description from Musculus of Sunday morning in the Lutheran church. At 7 a.m. we entered the church, where the office of the Mass, as they call it, was held in the following manner. First, the boys, that'd be the schoolchildren, and the headmaster sang the introit for cantate Sunday in Latin, set apart in the chancel in an entirely papistical fashion. What would that look like? Frankly, it means they were singing Gregorian chant. They were singing the old Latin introit for that Sunday after Easter. It'd be the very same words that we know for that Sunday after Easter, just in Latin. Then they came to the Kyrie eleison, with the organ being played in alternation. This was a very popular thing called an organ mass, where the congregation, or in this case the choir, would say, Kyrie, Lord have mercy, and then the organ would play, Lord have mercy, and then the choir would sing, Lord have mercy, and then the organ would play, Christ have mercy. They would sing, Christ have mercy. The organ would play, Christ have mercy. Kind of a very fancy, decorated version of the Kyrie, where you let the organ take a stanza, so to speak. Thirdly, a deacon dressed entirely according to the papistical fashion. Again, he even assumes you know what that means, but it probably means he was wearing vestments. Standing at the altar, which was likewise adorned with candles and other such things, sang in Latin, Gloria in excelsis Deo. This is glory be to God on high, maybe to a different tune. And this canticle, the choir and organist again completed. So they sang it in Latin again. When this was finished, the deacon sang a collect, as they call it, in German. Ah, here we go. They've taken the prayer for that day and put it into German. Facing the altar with his back turned toward the congregation. You can hear that really offends this Protestant and appended a reading from the epistle of James facing the congregation also in German. Now, there is so much we could talk about, Sean, here in this. But what's interesting is just a few things I'll point out. One, 
the source of their music was not brand new. They didn't throw out the old Gregorian chants. They didn't throw out all their organ music from when they were Roman Catholics. They kept all these things. When we heard that they kept the order of readings, they've even kept the names of the Sundays, Cantate Sunday. They've kept its appointed epistle. In this case, it's from James. And we see that they're doing it both in Latin and in German. This is fantastic. We get to see part of the change, but also part of the keeping it the same going on in the Lutheran Reformation. So the big canticles, the ones that we do every week, the ordinaries we call those, those are the things they tended to keep in Latin, probably because people were most likely to know the words to those. But when it came to the prayer, and especially the scripture readings, the kind of things that were either everyone is expected to participate in by saying amen to it, or that everybody is listening because there's going to be preaching on this later, those in particular get put into German. And as for the rest of the visual things, right? What does the pastor wear? Where is the placement in the service or in the chancel? All of that, in fact, looks exactly to this Protestant like a Roman Catholic service. And so much so that he calls it the deacon, and we can have a subdeacon in the leading of the liturgy as well, and the dalmatic that he would have worn, right? The vestment of the deacon. And while that's offensive to him, at the same time, that reaffirms the point that the Lutherans have been making. We're keeping all of these things that can be kept without sin because they do confess the faith. We're not looking to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. He goes on, again, the organ was playing while the choir sang Victime Pascale. This is Christians to the Paschal victim. And the congregation sang responsively, Christ is arisen. You'll find this in our Lutheran service book today. It's Lutheran service book 459 and Lutheran service book 460. This was an old sequence hymn. In fact, Luther himself had said he really didn't like the sequence hymns, this kind of prose poetry that would be sung after the Alleluia. He said, get rid of them all. But what's interesting, we see here that the Lutherans actually didn't listen to Luther in that. They kept the sequence. In fact, they kept a lot of other sequences, too, that in some places they adjusted slightly so that the offensive Roman Catholic teaching would be stripped from those. But in many cases, they kept them exactly as they were. Only that we see, just as we saw from the Confessions, it's interspersed with this German Lutheran chorale. Christ is arisen from the grave's dark prison. In fact, some of our congregations still do this very thing to this day because it's right there in our hymnal for us. He goes on. After this, the deacons sang a portion of the gospel in German. Interesting. They would sing the readings. That was so they could be heard and so that they would be dressed up, right? That we wouldn't just grumble, uh, I'm going to read the gospel now. But they actually would sing it so that everybody could hear it clearly so that it would, in fact, be a beautiful proclaiming of this. After they finished that, facing the congregation, the reading in the organ played, and the whole congregation sang, We all believe in one true God. This would be the German creed hymn. When they finished this, the preacher did his preaching. He was dressed in the usual manner, not in a special robe. Uh, I assume that means he was dressed as a preacher, as a doctor, maybe from the local university. After the sermon, the deacon, standing at the altar in priestly garb, exhorted the people to prayer for some particular enumerated circumstances and closed with Christ's promise, whatever you ask the Father, etc. Next, he briefly recalled the institution of the Lord's Supper. Then he sang the words of institution first over the bread, after which he elevated it entirely according to the papistical fashion, while genuflecting away from the people, and then over the chalice, which he likewise elevated after finishing the words of institution. Okay, we should probably pause and talk about this. 
So he's gone into the consecration, the part of the service that is dedicated to the Lord's Supper. We see stuff that's very familiar to us. The Lord's Prayer comes first, prayer of the church for all sorts of particular needs. We have the words of institution are spoken over the bread and the wine, that is to truly consecrate them, not simply as some kind of remembrance. But the thing we might not necessarily be used to is that it was elevated. It was lifted up so everybody could see it. And in fact, the the pastor would kneel away from the people, the Protestant says. But we know he's kneeling toward the altar, toward the bread and the wine, that he actually is recognizing this is Christ's body and blood, just as Jesus' words say. And you can imagine that was very offensive to a Calvinist. So it's interesting to see these ceremonies, which in some places may have even died out among us today, are nevertheless trying to emphasize the teaching that we believe, that we do believe in the true presence of Christ in the sacrament. And so the Lutherans at that time chose to keep it. When this was over, the organ played, the choir sang, On you stay, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We still sing that today. Meanwhile, communion began. The deacon, dressed in the usual manner, administered the chalice. Oop, he says here that not a single man was seen going to communion, but a few little women were communed. So, disappointing. The men were not coming to church that day. Following this, the deacon communed himself at the altar after having first adored the bread. I'm not sure what he means by that. Maybe bowed to it. Although he did not do so with the chalice. This he carefully emptied and then washed with newly poured wine so that nothing of the blood remained. What he's saying here is that he actually consumed everything at the altar and made sure that it wasn't thrown out or treated as common, uh, what had been consecrated. After communion, he sang a prayer while facing the altar. When this was finished, he dismissed the people with a benediction, and he sang while facing them. And it says that as the congregation left, the choir sang a hymn, Grant peace, we pray in mercy, Lord. That's LSB 777. And that was the end of it. One of the things that jumps to my mind as we go through this, and I just being mindful of the time, we got a a lot of great stuff coming up, but I want to get this in here. So someone might be tempted to say, because we deal with kind of Protestant influence big time in the United States here in our American culture. And there may even be some folks among us as Lutherans that are offended by these same things. I I remember being told when I was a young pastor by a well-meaning, wonderful, faithful Christian, but don't ever turn your back on us in the congregation, pastor. Mm. And I had to work through with them why a pastor does turn his back. But this is offensive to Protestants. And so as you went through all of that beautiful confession of the faith, and you highlighted those things really well, but someone might be tempted to say, well, why do we still need to follow that today? The Lutherans did then, but is it essential to being Lutheran? And maybe even essential is too strong a word. Is it even good and beneficial for us as Lutherans to maintain this from our Lutheran tradition as it relates to keeping these details or seeing these details in our worship? Well, it's very interesting to hear that this only, as far as I know, this is the only full description where he's going into such detail, you know, so much detail that you wonder if he might have gotten it wrong or made a point that wasn't that important to make. But he's paying close attention. He's a pastor visiting somebody else's church. I suppose we all do that, don't we? (laughs) But uh, it's from an opponent of Lutheranism. And he's not afraid to say, I don't like this stuff. And he doesn't give any of the why. But he takes the time to point out the things that he finds troublesome. And you can understand the why of his objection. And that really gets to the value of ceremonies and the place where adiaphora become not adiaphora like we spoke about last time. 
that in the case of a confession, when there's a need to distinguish one church's teaching from another's because we are not agreed on what the scriptures say, that's when these ceremonies become kind of the front lines of confessing. I'm going to read something from the conclusion of that book I was reading from Faith and Act by Zedon. He says that as he looks especially at the later, this is the end of the 16th century, and look at the various ceremonies and church orders that the Lutherans were following. He says this, Indeed, ceremonies became the very means for them to ward off or unmask Calvinism. It didn't represent a mere personal conviction. But actually, many of the uh, princes would put this right into their church orders to really try and make a confession. We're not Calvinists, or we are Calvinists, so we're getting rid of this thing. And that, I think, becomes the value of these things. Yes, are we required to do these on pain of salvation? No. Listen to our previous episodes on that. They're very clear. But are these things of value for confessing among our fellow Christians? There the answer has to be yes. The things that this Wolfgang Musculus, this Reformed pastor, objects to is our teaching on the Lord's Supper. Why would we bow facing away from the people but facing toward the altar? It's to confess something about what Christ's words say about the bread and the wine, that indeed they are his body and it is his blood. Why might a pastor face away from the people at all? It's to confess that we're not here to worship people. We're actually here to worship God. In fact, that puts all of us, pastor and people, in some parts of the service, facing in the same direction, not towards each other, not pretending as if in this shared experience, God is kind of realized within each ourselves, but to realize that God stands apart from us, but thankfully not apart from us. He's bringing his gifts to us in the Lord's service. And simply just the reverence and the, like Martin Chemnitz said in his introduction that I read at the beginning today, that we're trying to incite and encourage and teach people that serious and weighty matters are happening here. And if you were a Protestant, one who doesn't believe that the Lord's Supper delivers anything, confers any forgiveness, is a means of grace at all, then you wouldn't think a weighty matter is happening there. The only reason we're doing, I suppose, is because Jesus did actually say, do this in remembrance of me. But for Lutherans, we believe something very true is happening here. The Lord is giving his gifts. And if Jesus is here, well, I mean, we're going to act accordingly. And it even gets into some of the lighter things that we can easily pass over. And I don't want to make too big a point of this, but I thought it was interesting how he notices that it's the school children singing the introit. And how that contrasts with sometimes how we think about children singing in worship today. We give them silly songs or things like that. But no, we are confessing that we are given to raise them up in the way that they should go. And the way that they should go is singing beautifully, confessing God's word, which the introit's almost predominantly drawn from the the Psalms, and that that's connected with this is what they're learning in the schools, and they're doing it on Sunday morning among them and leading God's people in that. It's just a beautiful confession. And just as I might kind of preview one of the upcoming episodes that we'll be covering in this larger series of Concord Matters is Concord Matters for Lutheran Education. And we're going to dig into some of that as well as this is how we educate our children and why it's important for us to have our Lutheran schools and and doing these things as well. But that's kind of a side tangent. But again, it all comes... It's actually not a side tangent at all. We could go on with this explanation and with many of the church orders because they not only prescribe a life where you go to church on Sunday morning and it's the communion service and then you go home. But it's, it's a whole life that carries on during the week and the school is the center of the week life. 
And like I mentioned, the singing of the psalms, the daily offices, continued in the schools among the Lutherans. We know these because they've come down as kind of just two services instead of all seven, matins and vespers, morning prayer and evening prayer, which we still have in our hymnals. And the the school children would sing these every day. They would be slightly pared down from what they were in the Roman church. But the purpose would be revitalized, that they would be learning these, that they would be practicing their Latin, which that's what their school was entirely conducted in, but they would be singing it as well. And you're right, it has a purpose for the rest of the congregation too, because when it comes to the weekend, the children are running the service, not in a way that they're up in front in the chancel dancing around or pretending to be pastors, but in that they're proclaiming from the balcony in particular, or from the chancel in some cases, they're proclaiming the center parts of the service. They're helping the congregation sing their parts. And I could go on forever about this because I'm the director of worship, and this is what I love. (laughs) Well, and, and there's just few things more beautiful than the children really leading that well because they know it. It's a part of them, and it carries all the way to the deathbed. You see this again and again in so many writings and among faithful Christians still today that on our dying lips, these beautiful beautiful things that we learned and have sung as children are there and at the ready in the moments of Christ. It's just a whole beautiful overarching thing of the Christian life being formed and shaped in it. It's just beautiful. Yeah. If we have time, I think what we should do is just look at the weekend schedule, because I think that'll give us an idea, and then we'll look for just a touch about church music. So here's the weekend schedule, at least at a big city church for the Lutherans. On Saturday in the afternoon, there's going to be Vespers, and maybe before it, they might even have some catechism instruction. Vespers, the school children will probably lead it. They'll sing some psalms, we'll sing the Magnificat, just like we do today. Sunday morning comes around, early in the morning, there's matins, and that'll be with the Benedictus, maybe with the Tadeum. They'll sing just a few psalms. There'll be some preaching again. We'll have that chief divine service. The only difference between ours and theirs is they include some Latin as well as German or vernacular, and also their sermon was a lot longer than ours, probably about an hour. But in that afternoon, there's more teaching on the catechism, and there's second Vespers. There's another Vespers on Sunday afternoon. I should have said at the very beginning, confession absolution was probably happening often on Saturday night before that first Vespers. You see, the whole weekend then gets taken up, devoted with the worship for the whole people of God, as well as the school children continuing it daily at those big cathedral churches, larger town churches, all throughout the week. It'd be simpler out in the country, but you probably would still have a Vespers, some kind of catechism teaching, as well as the main service with communion. If we were to look at music, boy, there's so much that's not commanded by God about music, but there's such a richness to the Lutheran church. We see it's school-driven, that the kids are leading the singing, and, and we need to have cantors primarily for teaching the children. That's the attitude of our reformers. But there's both choral and congregational singing. Yeah, they're going to sing something in Latin, but the congregation has their place to participate using hymns. There's going to be two kinds of singing, choralitaire, they would call it, and figuralitaire. What do those mean? A simple melody, like a chant or a hymn. You can see that being congregational or choral. But also polyphonic music, multiple parts. This is all of the great choral music that you might know from the Renaissance. That is something the Lutherans love to use. And everybody knows Bach once we get to the Baroque period. But there are so many great lesser-known names that really are central to this kind of life that our confessions were living. People like Michael Pretorius, Heinrich Schutz, Schein and Scheidt, 
these lesser-known Lutheran composers that really were much more engaged with what our confessors would have known as church because it's the life that lives with one foot in the hymns and one foot in the chants of old, really taking everything that we'd received from the past that we're free to use and bringing also the new musical artistry to bear on it. Okay, so I think we've covered so much today, and I hope it's whet your appetite. In addition to those books I mentioned, I've got to give a plug to a brand new book from Concordia Publishing House. This is called The Chief Divine Service by Friedrich Lochner. And thank you to Matthew Carver, a fantastic translator that we have in our synod, who's giving us so many great resources. And this is his latest. This book is important because Lochner was our best liturgical scholar in the Missouri Synod. He wrote this back in the 1800s. But this volume is so rich in explaining not just life in the 16th century, as we've talked about today, but also the life of the parts of our divine service from early church all the way past the Reformation, at least up to his era. And it's complete with music, with history, with practice, with ceremonies. It's a great glimpse into the best scholarship of his time, at least that could be done from Germany in the 1840s and 50s. I would definitely have you check that out, The Chief Divine Service by Friedrich Lochner from CPH. With just a couple of minutes left here, I want to first say thank you so much for all the fantastic work that you do for our church body as the director of worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. But also thank you. It's been a great honor to have you on four weeks in a row. Thank you for giving us your precious time and faithfully confessing and walking us through these important matters to consider of Concord Matters for Worship. But kind of wrapping up this series here today with you, we have some other things just to preview. We're going to be taking a look at Concord Matters for Church Architecture, what we confess in our architecture. We're going to dig a little deeper into the hymns as well and the music of the church, confessing that as well. So you've given us some great jumping off points for both of those things and so much more. But as you wrap up this little mini-series in this show today, how do you want to leave us? Well, I hope we can remember back to all of our shows on this topic and to see that the emphasis for Lutherans is on faith. It's on receiving the Word of God, on hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he has done to redeem us. And if we're interested in faith, that then is where reverence and ceremony and beauty and music and all of the attendant aspects of worship, the visible and audible things, flow. It comes from faith and the Word of God itself. And if we just take a glimpse into what it looked like in the 16th century, like we've done today, we see a richness, a beauty back and forth between pastor and people, congregation and choir singing back to each other, preaching, being nestled in the heart of beautiful action and song. This is the Lutheran vision for worship. It's not boring. It's not simple. It's action-packed. But the action is the Word of God coming to Christian hearts, touching their consciences, calling them to repentance, bringing them to faith, leading them and inspiring them for good works in their community and all of it focused on what the Lord has done for us. That's the Lutheran Divine Service, and that's what Lutheran worship looks like. That's Chaplain Sean Denzer, the Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and Chaplain for the International Center in St. Louis, Missouri here. Thank you so much for joining us for Concord Matters today, discussing today with us why Concord Matters for the details of our worship but also this mini-series of taking a look at Concord Matters for Worship. Thank you. It's been a great honor to have you join us. And thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church. Thank you.